you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 10. Psalm 10, it's on page 451 in the Bibles in the chairs, and as you're, you're turning there, uh, we have two more installments after this of our sermon series this summer in the Psalms, the first 12 Psalms, and then we're going to begin a, a new sermon series in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And to help you and to aid you in that, we have out in the narthex here these new uh, scripture journals put out by Crossway. And this one is on the, the book of Philippians. Uh, they're available for purchase. You can get it to follow along and study in the scriptures together and make notes. Uh, I think this will be a great resource to, to aid everyone in the congregation, children and adults alike. So check that out uh, after the service. We're looking forward to that uh, study here this fall. Psalm 10, this is the word of the Lord. Why, why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. But the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces Yahweh. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Yahweh, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we read these words and we want to understand how they fit into our lives, Lord. What, what meaning there is for us. So, Lord, would you teach us? Would you show us what your holy word has to say to our lives, Lord, so that we may follow you and seek you. It is in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. At the beginning, uh, way back in May, when we began this study in the first 12 Psalms, we obviously began in Psalm 1, and we saw where Psalm 1 serves as not only the introduction to a sermon series on the first 12, but it's an introduction to the whole Psalter. And in Psalm 1, the psalmist lays out for us this paradigm of the two ways, that there are two ways to live. There's the way of the righteous, and there's the way of the wicked. And here, we have an extended meditation here on the way of the wicked, and that's what Psalm 10 is doing. But why? Why so much ink? Why so many words? about the way of the wicked here in Psalm 10. Why so much time given to the ungodly who do not know God, who do not seek God, who do not even believe that there is a God? Why? Why? That's how this psalm begins. Look there in verse 1. David cries out, Why, O Lord? But before we get into these answers, we need to make a few introductory remarks to understand Psalm 10 here. As Pastor Russ mentioned last week in, his, uh, in our study of Psalm 9, there's a lot of evidence that actually Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 go together, that they may have formed one psalm and that years ago they were broken into two different psalms for reference. They do seem to have two different focuses or two different themes. You know, Psalm 9 is a more upbeat, happy tenor, where Psalm 10 seems to be more serious and sober-minded. They, they're almost polar opposite the way they flow. But that's helpful if we think about it. Psalm 9 kind of being on a high note, Psalm 10 being kind of sober reality, because life is often like that, right? Life can be good. Everything can be going well. All can be fine, (laughs) but then it can turn in a moment where we can have one of those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. This is sometimes what the Christian life is like. There are different seasons, sometimes good seasons, sometimes hard seasons. But the primary reason that it was probably one psalm is that if you were looking at a Hebrew Bible, you would notice that this was actually Psalm 9 and 10 form an acrostic poem of following the sequential letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You may remember that when we studied last year, Psalm 119, it was the same way. And so it has 22 stanzas, and each stanza would begin with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, why do I tell you all that? Why is it important? For this reason. You need to know that your Bible is very intentional. The scriptures are very deliberate in the way they seek to minister to God's people. The Bible is very beautiful. It's God's holy word, and it's very purposeful in its delivery and its application to us. And so Psalm 10 is probably not one of your favorite psalms. It's not one that you may go to often for encouragement, but it is the next psalm for us in our study of these psalms. And so let's apply God's word to us. Let's see what God's word teaches us about our life and about this world. And that's what we need to look at here in Psalm 10. It teaches us that life in a fallen world is hard. And it's easy for us to look around and believe that evil is winning and the bad guys have it easy all the time. 
But Psalm 10 is actually teaching us in David's extended meditation here on the wicked ways of the world that there is a king, and the king is good, and the king knows what is good, and he knows the desires of the afflicted, and he will do justice to those who seek him. That's what Psalm 10 is about. So to understand the flow of this psalm, we're going to look at uh, four Ps. Pastor Russ did three Ps last week. I'm going with four Ps today. I'm inspired by the letter P, I guess. Thank you, Pastor Russ. So here we go. The first is we're going to look at the plea of this psalm, then the problem of the psalm, and the prayer of the psalm, and then the promise of this psalm. So the first thing there is the plea. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is David crying out, pleading with the Lord. It's also a lament. Some of the biggest and hardest questions that we have in life start with, why? Why? That's where this psalm begins. Why, O Lord? That is Yahweh. Why, O Yahweh God? Do you stand far away? This is King David. Writing this psalm, a man after God's own heart. He was a righteous and good king. He was a sinner. He had many big uh, failings, but he was a true worshiper. And he asked God, why? Why does it seem like God is hidden in times of trouble? Notice that David's why question, it's not philosophical in nature. He's not doubting God's existence here. He He's not dealing with the problem of evil. He's not trying to have a philosophical discussion with us. He's, David is actually demonstrating great faithfulness because he cries out, Why, O Yahweh, the covenant personal name of God David is crying to, Why, O Yahweh, does it seem like you are far away and that you are hidden in times of trouble? David's plea, again, is in fact a lament. A lament is an expression of of grief and of sorrow over the way things are, and that is what David is doing. He's lamenting. But he's not just lamenting out loud. He's not just lamenting to the gods that might be out there. He's not just lamenting to anyone who might hear, but he is lamenting to the Lord his God, Yahweh. Do you ever feel this way? Can you sympathize with David here? Does it feel like God is hidden from your troubles? Do you ever feel like God is distant from your pain? You know, this is why the Psalms are so helpful for real life. Because we can identify with them in our own troubles. In the way that we often feel. But I want you to notice something here, that even though David doesn't understand God's ways here, even though he is crying out why, even though God's response or even his non-response is troubling to David, he's not using his his lack of understanding, his questions of why to to detach himself from God or to say, I'm going to disbelieve in God for a, a time, but rather David uses his trouble, he's using his questioning to go deeper as an incentive to go farther with his relationship with the Almighty. 
David is seeking to understand God and seek after him. I believe this is what the Christian life should be like. I think this is the calling for us from the psalm. If, if something bad or troubling or hard is happening to you, or if it hasn't happened, it, it, it will happen. Troubles and trials will come. Then we need to seek the Lord and seek answers from him and, and, and not withdraw. We need to realize that we live in a fallen world and that we're not guaranteed a life of ease and comfort and happiness all the time. And so when the trials come, and they will come, will you ask God to use them as an opportunity to grow in your faith? Or will you do as so often many of us, even myself, have done and use it as a time to distance ourselves from God? Or say that you're not going to believe in God for a time or you're taking a break from Christianity. Or, or doubt with his existence. And if you doubt God's existence, surely that'll be a, a way to deal with pain. One of the ways that I have seen this expressed so often, even in the church, is that when hard times strike people or families, that they withdraw. Withdraw from the church and withdraw from fellowship with God's people. And if you find yourself wanting to do this or you see this happening to a brother and sister in Christ, don't do it. This is the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Hard times and troubling times are meant to draw us to God, not away from him and his people. We shouldn't take a break from God. Because when we do this, unfortunately, we're following the ways of the wicked who do not seek God, the psalmist says. But I don't want to discount how hard it can be when it seems that God is far away from you in your pain. I don't want to undermine the fact that it is hard, it is tough when it seems like God is not there in your troubles. And again, though, we must not fall into this trap of taking a break from God. Matthew Henry states that God's withdrawings are very grievous to his people, especially in times of trouble. And we can stand far off from God by our unbelief and then complain that God stands far from us. Don't do it. Don't use your trouble and your pain as an opportunity to withdraw from God. Rather, use pain, use trials, use struggles, use sadness as an opportunity to go to the Lord and to deepen your relationship with him. And oftentimes that can mean asking, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Many saints have wrestled with God in this way. And when we do this, when we wrestle with God, trying to understand the why questions of life, he uses, we will see that he uses trials, and often he uses pain to help us grow in the Christian life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is using or can use trials and troubles and pain in your life to draw you closer to him? C.S. Lewis famously said in his work, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures. 
He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that leads us into the next section of this psalm, verses 3 through 11. This is kind of the problem that David is wrestling with. In Psalm 10, we find David trying to work out, and even he's meditating on what he sees and doesn't understand, and mainly he's, he's wrestling with this question, why does it seem like the wicked are prospering? Why does it seem like the bad guys are always winning? And again, we must ask, why? Why is David doing this? Why is he spend, spending so much, spilling so much ink, using so many words, meditating on the ways of the wicked? I actually don't have an easy answer here. And, and, and quite honestly, it was very, very painful for me to read that to you. You have to spend that much time talking about the ways of the wicked. But these verses, we must see, can be a reminder to us that life is hard. These verses are here for us to understand that we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. And as Christians, we are at odds with the world. This world is not our home. And so we should expect war. We should expect trouble and heartache. You know, I've lived in Huntsville for about four and a half years now. And the time that I have lived here, there's been a lot that has gone on in our world. A lot to really mourn and be sad about. I mean, think about the last five years. How many school shootings have there been? How many natural disasters have struck our world? How many court rulings have tried to undo the fabric, the moral fabric of our society? So David's meditation here in these verses remind us of the fact that evil does exist. Sin is real, and the world is not as it should be. And the key point for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to be drawn into the problems of this world and let them get us down, but we're to interpret the world through the, sovereign, through the sovereignty of God, that, that he's in control, that he knows all things, he sees all things, but that he is a helper. And the promise is here is that he will crush the power of sin by his holy might and he will be with his people he is sovereign he's in control and he's working all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose and so this leads to the third part of the psalm the prayer in verse 12 through 15 look there with me he cries out in prayer Arise, O Yahweh God, do something. That's what David is praying. That's, he spent all this time meditating on, the, on the, the problem of evil. And what does he say? Lord, Lord, please do something. Please lift up your hand. He's asking God to, to move into action. This, again, is a, a prayer we can pray. These are words we can use. And in his prayer, David professes what he knows to be true, that the Lord God, he is the Almighty. He's the sovereign one. He Look there in verses 14. He 
sees all things. He knows all things. He is a helper. I'm struck by the the tenor and the tone of this prayer because so many times my prayers simply stop with me asking God to do something. And many times it can be selfish. But David seems to go further. His his prayers are are rich in, in theology and rich in the promises of God. Again, look at verses 14. He's praying these things that he knows about God. And he's praying to his God because he knows who his God is. He knows that the God whom he is praying to is the one who will bring wickedness to an account. And that he is a helper of the fatherless. And he is a blessing to those who are helpless. Do you feel helpless? God is a helper to the fatherless. Do you feel like an orphan at times? Do you feel alone? God is a father. Do you oftentimes feel like God is passive and not moving at least as quickly as you would like? God sees all things, and it says that he notes it. I like that. I I, I picture here the Lord God, he notes mischief and vexation. He's, He's got it written down. He knows all things. These are prayers that we can pray. And that leads us to the promise in verses 16 through 18. These promises of God, these good promises. What are we to do when we're struggling with the why questions of life? Where do we go for comfort in in our sorrow? We should do what these first few psalms that we've been studying all summer that keep telling us to do over and over and over again, we practice good theology. We need to practice good theology, and that means we need to put into practice and think about what we believe about God, and we practice good theology by reminding ourselves and holding on to the promises of God. And so what are the promises that we find here in verses 16 through 18? Look at these. Yahweh God is king forever. Isn't that good news? That he's not going to be usurped from the throne? That we're not going to elect another God who might, not, who might not be any good? He is king forever. And we want a king who knows all things, who sees all things, who, who can put all of the pages of history together to do good. That Yahweh, your God, he hears the desires of the afflicted. Think about how when he came down and spoke to Moses, he heard the cries of his people in Egypt. That Yahweh, God, is a God of justice. That he longs to do what is just and right. And these truths mean that no matter what happens or how it happens or how long it takes, that God is working all things for the good. And that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is sovereignly orchestrating all things for the glory of his name. And sometimes that means that justice will be slow. Sometimes that means that he will and does allow suffering. 
Sometimes that means that it will appear for a time that the bad guys are winning. But no matter what, living by faith, trusting the Lord God means to hold on to the promises that he has given to us because he is the king, he is a good king, he has a plan, he is king forever. He will not leave us alone, he will not leave us as orphans, and ultimately he will not leave us stricken. He will bring justice to the oppressed. Back to the why question. question of why. Really, the question poised to us here in the scriptures is the same questions that our world is asking right now. Right now. Think about it. If there is a God and he is good, then why does he allow suffering? Why is there evil in the world? You know, as Christians, we actually have really good answers for these questions. Although we can't fully understand God and his ways, we know that we live in a fallen world. That the world has sin and evil. And we know this fallen world needs to be redeemed. Even more, this fallen sinful world needs a king who will come and make all things right. So that's why we can not only point ourselves but others to Jesus, who is that good king, who will come and make all things right. But that doesn't mean we struggle any less with understanding why is there suffering? Why is there bad stuff? And so as Christians, we need to take our theology a little further, a little deeper. And we need to do that by understanding the difference between the temporary and the ultimate If we're caught up only in the temporary, only in the here and now, only in the present, because we want what we want and we want it right now, then we will be discouraged. We will struggle. And we must all confess that we want God to work on our timing. We want God to work according to our will, and we want him to work quickly. But the scriptures teach us that God is sovereign over history and over time and over all things and so that means that he has an ultimate plan and so we must confess that he knows what is best that's why he says about himself in Isaiah 55 he says my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as high as the heavens are above the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts And so what we must do is we must pray. We must pray to be patient and await our king. That he will move and that he will act in his good timing. A a prayer book that I've recommended to you several times this summer, The Valley of Vision, had some helpful prayers that I prayed, that I I read here this, this past few weeks. A few of those I want to share with you. One is, O Lord, if you have appointed storms of tribulation, help me to know that in them you are there. Another one. O Lord, glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trials. 
Another one we might add, O Lord, help me to know that my ways are not your ways. So to humbly and patiently wait on you. When we think of trouble in our own lives, when we look around and see, again, evil in the world, and try to understand why it's there and how is it possible that God will use all this bad stuff for good, the remedy that we must seek is to look no further than the cross. On the cross, we could say the worst act in the history of our world, God used even that for good. For our good, God's own son was punished, was killed for us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so may God help us to see that at the cross, our king has come to rescue us. And put all things right. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we read these words and we seek to understand them. But Father, we confess to you that it is, is difficult. Oh Lord, we want to understand. Give us great faith to trust in you. To trust your sovereignty. To know that you are king forever and ever. And you know what is the most good. And so, Father, help us to walk by faith, knowing that you see all things. You know all things. And that you love and you have a good plan for those who have been called according to your purpose. And, Father, you have confirmed this because of Jesus' death on the cross. We praise you and thank you for him. In his name we pray, amen.